Welcome to Hunt Gather Talk, the podcast of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I am very, very happy to have on the show this week a colleague and a friend named Pascal Baudar. He is a fellow forager and a fellow crazy experimenter with wild foods. He is an L.A. resident and works with a lot of the same foods that I work with, only in Southern California, but he has a unique perspective on working with wild foods that I can't wait to share with you. So without further ado, here is Pascal on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am really, really happy to finally be able to talk to you and hear your voice. I mean, we've corresponded for years, and I think this might be the first time you and I have ever physically spoken. That's correct. It's so good to hear you. Pascal is the author of a one of the more remarkable foraging books to come out in the last few years. It's called A New Wildcrafted Cuisine, Exploring the Exotic Gastronomy of Local Terroir, which is quite a mouthful. Yes, it is. <laughs> Did you um, uh, did you name it that, or did the publisher name uh, it that? The publisher named that one. Originally, I actually forgot what name I wanted for it. I think it was the Rewilded Kitchen or Rewilded Cuisine or something like that. I've had any number of arguments with uh, publishers over the, the titles of my books, and uh, sometimes you lose that one. Yeah, but you know, I like the title now. It's, it actually makes it different, and I actually like the word wildcrafted instead of forged. Forage Christine. I do too. I mean, and we're going to get into you know the subtle differences between wild crafting and foraging in a little while. But uh, in case you haven't noticed, the people listening out here, Pascal is not born in the United States. <laughs> you don't like my New York accent? <laughs> I've lived in New York, and I, I'm, I I hear plenty of people with with. Uh, well, I was going to say French accents, but you're from Belgium, right? Yeah, that's correct. The land of what? the land of beers. Exactly. What uh, what part of Belgium are you from? Oh my God! I grew up in a small, tiny little town of one thousand people. Um, not a lot to do, and which is how I got in love with nature by basically just spending my youth wandering the woods. You know, my closest neighbor was a cow, and I could not have a lot of philosophical discussion with her. <laughs> I was very close to France, actually, uh, literally living maybe um, twenty-five yards from custom. Oh, wow. So very close to the north of France. I studied military history in college, so I'm always thinking, oh, Belgium, that's where the Germans always swing through. That's correct. (laughs) It's kind of like the open door to France. (laughs) My favorite is that the French never bothered to figure this out after the first time. It's like, we don't need the wall in front of Belgium because we like them. And what what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) One of the things that people talk about about us, you know, because both of us are reasonably well known in the in the wildcrafting world, is that we kind of do similar things 500 miles apart. So I live in Northern California, and you're are you in Los Angeles proper or yeah, or yeah, whereabouts? Yeah, I'm just on the outside of Los Angeles. Okay, and the ecosystems, this being California, are so they're different in a lot of ways, but. It's remarkable how many things that you and I both work with, except you're always about a month and a half before me. That's correct. So how did you – I mean, you said you intimated a little bit about it. You got into foraging as a kid. Right. And what does foraging look like you know, in Belgium in when you were growing up? I mean, what is, is it part of the culture? Is it just – were you different or, or what's – you know, because some places it's very normal and lots of people do it. And some places like where I grew up, it's very unusual. Uh, it was actually pretty normal. Um, yes and no. I mean, I grew up in a in a very small town uh, in a actual farm. And the farm was probably from the 16 or 1700. Uh, so we basically were had our own garden, huge garden. We were raising our own rabbits and and chicken and all this stuff. And foraging was just another way to add to the table, to be honest. Uh, you know, the old timers in Belgium still knew, you know, how to cook things like nettles, lamb squatter, you know. Um, as a kid, we would go foraging for walnuts, hazelnuts, you know, all kinds of different stuff like that. So it was still used, but, you know, in retrospective, it was also getting lost in the same time. I was right in that period of time where people were not thinking too much about foraging anymore, the younger generation, that is. 
I wonder if there was, because I, I understand that this existed all over Europe because of the Second World War, kind of a backlash against that sort of thing because it reminded people of very hard times. I don't disagree with you. I actually remember there was a specific plant. I forgot the name, to be honest, but people would not touch it uh, because they pretty much, it was like one of the main staples during the war. And it was actually, you know, after the war, they say, well, I don't want to eat that thing anymore. You know, we have something similar here in, in the United States with jackrabbits. Um, back in the day, well, originally in the pioneer days, if you, if, jackrabbits were your only source of protein, you could get a vitamin deficiency because they're not a complete protein. Right. And then flash forward to the Great Depression in the 1930s, and you had a very similar issue where people were eating jackrabbits because they had to survive. And even to this day, I mean, we're, you know, 80 years later, there's a huge prejudice against eating jackrabbits in this country. And that's, that's largely the origin of it. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, you know what's it's passed on from generation to generation. So now you have people in their twenties and thirties and even forties who are wondering, well, why are jackrabbits bad again? And and then you know the old timers are like, oh, they're terrible, and they want to <laughs> okay, okay. So, you know, did you hunt and fish when you were a kid too? No, I didn't hunt, but I did a lot of fishing for sure. But hunting, I've never done any hunting to be honest. We got to fix that because California is a pretty good place to uh, to go hunting, and it would. And it's funny because you and I are probably uh, you know it's sort of I, I hit hunting. Oh, I would say fifteen years ago. Uh-huh. So I came to it as an adult as well, and for me, it felt like closing a circle. Interesting. You know, because you you know you and I both forage, you and I both fish, yeah. and then so the last piece to the wild food puzzle is hunting, and that's. It eventually filled that niche for me, and and I felt a lot better creating with a truly wild palate. And you know, not that I don't like meat raised at humane farms or anything, but that wasn't always available. So, could you imagine doing something you know, truly wild and then throwing a factory farm chicken on it? Oh, I, I completely believe you. Actually, <clears throat> on my side, because I don't hunt, I actually went much deeper into the use of plants. Uh, and, you know, use of nature. But, yeah, I have nothing against hunting either. So when um, when did you move to the United States and did you come out to California? Uh, I moved in 1986 and my the first place I lived in was New York and I didn't like it. You know, I kind of grew up in nature and New York was so different. <laughs> you, you feel like a little ant, you know, in a, in a huge forest with all those tall buildings and everything. Uh, and then I moved, I traveled a little bit and then I moved to California and I fell in love completely with the desert, actually. I love the desert. I do too. I mean, I think the, it's funny, um, not too long ago, I was asked to be on that television show, Naked and Afraid. Uh-huh. And for the good of humanity, I, I said no. <laughs> but, I, you know, they, when I was thinking about whether I was going to say yes or not, the biggest thing was like, well, I could do it in the desert, but there's no way I'm going to a jungle. Yeah, I can see that. There's just, I just like the desert too. I mean, have you, have you been to the Sonoran in, in southern Arizona? Yes. I mean, I visited all kinds of different places. Uh, at one point, I even lived in uh, Oregon, and uh, the desert was so beautiful and different over there. Oh, that's the, that's the Great Basin part yeah. of the desert. That's, that's a whole different... Oh, my God, yeah. Very, very different. Yeah, icy desert. Yeah. So the you know did you come here for for business for job or? Uh, I was actually a graphic artist and my wife uh, was uh, American so I Hollywood you know it's a good place to actually do graphic art. Do you still do it or no, full time now? No, I'm, I'm actually full time like this point like doing research and teaching and uh, um, uh, how to say uh, writing books at this point. I think I'm gonna probably do another book soon on. Uh, uh, primitive and wild brewing. Oh, nice. I, uh, in fact, um, I have to credit you in your book for finally pushing me over the edge <laughs> into into beer brewing. Uh, it's actually amazing when you study the history of beer and, and, and all the things that you can do. I mean, hops and grains are... I mean, hops is definitely a latecomer, to be honest. I think it came in in the 1500s or so, but before that, people were making all kinds of different beers using really interesting ingredient from 
for just regular drinking or medicinal or you know getting drunk or even psychotropic you know exactly yeah. I mean, uh, I have to do correct you a little bit. I mean, hops has been used in beer since 822, but it didn't become oh, right. domi- dominant until the 1500s. Yeah, you are correct. You are correct. So yeah, he became the, the modern definition of beer came in the 1500s, I think, when the Germans. Yeah. Again, the Germans. Yeah, they decided. In, in the modern definition of beer is actually a beverage, you know, made of uh, hops and grains. Right. But you know, especially being a Belgian, I mean, the 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 holy grail of a truly wild beer is a is and you're doing this is a is a beer with a wild ferment and wild ingredients. That's correct. That's correct. Now, now, do you ever work with malt? I I know in your book you're not working with malt. So far, I've not worked with malt, but uh, actually this month I'm gonna go back to studying and actually doing a very primitive beer using grain that I'm going to germ uh, myself. Oh. So I'm basically going to go like four or five thousand years ago and try to do it from scratch, even including uh, using um, stones to a uh, uh, heating stone to make the beer. Oh, the stone beer. Yeah, stone wow, beer. That is hardcore. You don't. You're not even going to bother to start with like. Oh, I think I'll do a Belgian golden. Nah, screw it. We're going five thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did the same thing. Like, I mean, the reason I, I I was inspired by the brewing part of your first book is is that, you know, I mean, any talking chimp can make a decent IPA, um, but not everybody can make a Gruet, which is a, a, a beer which is bitter right. with something that is not hot. Yes. Um, and, and I realized that looking at what you work with, and, you know, I think the first thing I did was your mugwort beer in in your book. Right. And I screwed it up the first time, and the second time it worked. And I'm like, huh, this is, I could do this, and this is not that hard. And what's more, and this kind of gets to why you and I are talking today, I could do something that no one else has ever done. That's correct. And I think you are probably best known in the this world, this little world of ours as the guy who pushes. That's kind of what I like to do. I mean, I have a fascination for exploring flavors, but more from, uh, I would say, nearly an artistic point of view. You know, I, I'm i very artistic, I mean, being a graphic designer, and I, I really like to go deep on exploring how far you can take things. I mean, if you take a look at the history of beer, there's probably 100 to 150 different ingredients that were used originally from whorehound to aldebark, willow bark, and all kinds of different stuff, and roots. So the the amount of fermented brews that you can make is pretty much infinite. Yeah, and then that's just sort of the adjunct herbs, let alone what you're actually getting your sugars from. Yes, you can get your sugar also from all kinds of different ways. You can, you know, I even use insect sugar, the the lerp sugar sometimes, which is that was hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you sent me a little packet of that once, and then I tried it. I'm like, huh, interesting. I don't think I'm ever going to do it, but you know, so so describe for the listeners. Um, what it is and how you get it. Well, it's actually a little insect uh, that came with the eucalyptus. Although eucalyptus actually invasive in California, and uh, when people planted it, a little insect, the uh, type of salad actually came with it, and it's a little fly. And what it does is just put a little um, egg on the leaves of the eucalyptus, and you have a little bug that comes up and basically sucks the juice of the eucalyptus and poop sugar. And the concoction is actually uh, kind of 50% sugar, 50% starch. Um, and it will vary depending on the location. Sometimes you have more sugar, sometimes you have more starch. But it was actually aborigines food uh, <coughs> in Australia. And uh, they were using to make some sort of power bar, actually, because it's pure energy, starch and sugar. Um, but I use it also for brewing as one of the natural sugar that we have here. How hard is it to collect it? I mean, it's it's, it's little dried honeydew bits on leaves, it, it's right? It's a pain in the butt. <laughs> it is definitely a pain in the butt. I mean, you can spend a whole day and maybe collect like three or four pounds, that type of thing, if that. 
Well, that's that's not bad, actually. No, I mean, some of those trees are actually loaded, and, and to be honest, you're actually helping the tree because they're killing the tree to some degree. Because uh, they're sucking the juices that's out correct. of the tree. Yeah. You mentioned something a little bit about you know eucalyptus being invasive, and, and I, it brings up a point where when you moved here, I'm certain that you started walking around and noticing plants that you grew up with. Oh, absolutely. I would say like... Uh Probably between Belgium and California, I would say forty to fifty percent of the plant I can recognize. Yeah, I mean that was the that was the crazy thing because you know I'm I'm from the east coast of the United States, which is not as far away as Belgium, but it's still three thousand miles away, and there's so many species that are native to California that I expected to not know anything, but I did. Oh, absolutely, uh, and I mean you know that too. I mean I would say like. 80% or 90% when I was working with Chef, 80% to 90% of what we forage is actually non-native plants. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, if you think about, I mean, one of the things that blows people's minds is is you think of chicory and dandelions and chickweed and, you know, the host of lamb's quarters and, you know, goosefoot, well, goosefoot's native. There's a, there's a number of what we would consider garden weeds. Purslane is another good one. Right. That are... You know, they were brought here for food. There's, there's sort of a carp of the plant world. You know, the Germans brought carp to the United States as a food fish, and then everybody realized, oh, they have an extra set of bones, and we have all these fish that live here that don't have an extra set of bones, so screw the carp. And, you know, we did the same thing with these plants. And so virtually all of these weeds were brought to North America for to be food, and now nobody nobody pays attention to them. Yeah, they they came from all kinds of you know. Some of them were brought as food, but if you think about it, when they started to create like uh, agriculture in the U.S., uh, they actually bought some grain from Europe and different countries. And you can be sure that probably two two percent of the grains actually contain weeds, weed seeds. So it actually came also with the seeds that were used for planting. Exactly. Yeah. I think that famous one is is uh, broadleaf plantain, which the the Indians called white man's foot. Yeah. Because if it if it showed up in their turf, they're like, oh boy, white guys are coming. <laughs> but uh, I mean, if you think about it, like uh, Los Angeles, we invaded with mustard. Oh yeah. You know, and and you know the 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 fun thing about foraging is how also how you can take all those non-native plants and make gourmet food out of it, because it's a nice way to have the environment too. Oh yeah, and for for me, I mean, I think you have it too. Is is um, fennel is the big one? Oh my god, yes, we have a, so much fennel, and that's to perfume too, all over the place. Thanks, Italians. Um, <laughs> the Italians brought it, just like the French brought the uh, the helix snail, uh-huh. and you know they brought it for food. Yeah, and it, it really, really likes California. <laughs> yes, same thing with figs, by the way. On on ice. Oh, that's right. I have a French uh, a guy named Charlie. Uh, he's a plant biologist, and, and he'll probably listen to this podcast. His main job, he used to work on um, on Catalina Island, and he was a uh, plant assassin. So he would he would walk around Catalina Island with a pack of, I don't know, Roundup or something on his back. And his whole job was to kill non-natives like fennel and figs. Huh. Yeah, because it's, you know, they're trying to restore those islands to, you know, all native flora and fauna. Oh, that's wonderful. And so his part of his job as a biologist was to was to assassinate the non-natives. Well, that makes sense. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know that's why I mean, pick all the fennel you want. Um, pick the figs, what, oh, Himalayan blackberries, wild radish, all well, yeah, you know, ten different type of mustard, curly dog. I mean, you name it. There's like so many stuff. Yeah, it's funny because we have both a native and a non-native dock here. Yeah. We've got the western dock with the flat leaves and the curly dock with the frilly leaves. Right, right. So, you know, I mean, everybody sort of starts out making like, oh, I'm going to make a blackberry pie or I'm going to, you know, saute some lamb's quarters with my steak or whatever. How did you decide to step off the cliff and do really weird stuff? Well, Would you guys get bored? No, Basically, what happened is I really don't have any culinary background. Um, I love cooking, but I really don't have a culinary background, and I love food preservation. Uh, you know, I I did the master food preserver program, but I also like traditional method of food preservation. And I, f- <clears throat> I think it was actually an advantage in approaching the wild food because I basically looked at it and basically let the plant talk to me. 
instead of trying to do something with the plant that will fit a specific training. For example, I say, you know, if I work with an Italian chef, they may take lamb squatter or nettle and make a nettle pasta, for example. Mm-hmm. If you work with a French chef, they will have a tendency to take the wild food and interpret that within their own training and cuisine. But I basically just did the reverse and I basically took a look at the ingredients and say, what do you want to be? What can I do with you? And basically really look at it from a brand new viewpoint. What's interesting is I, I, I actually rarely do that. And it's funny. That's a very, that's a difference between the two of us. What I often do is my path is always, I do look at the European traditions, mm-hmm. but I also, I, I'm, I'm looking at my bookcase right now and I think I have, I don't know, maybe 30 or 50 different ethnobotanies of all the different, uh, Western Indian groups. So the, so, you know, these books, you know, which were written by anthropologists, um, for the Western native groups, uh, are so much better than the ones in the Eastern groups because by the time, you know, the white people basically came West, there, the anthropology existed. So you, there's this huge treasure trove mm-hmm. of information about how, say, you know, the Miwoks or the Maidus or the Paiutes would, those are my native groups in my area, how they would use the, the, you know, the ingredients. Do you do the same with your southern groups? I have a lot of book about, you know, uh, about ethnobotany and also did a lot, uh, not a lot, but a few classes with uh, Kahulas in, uh, near Palm Spring. Mm, okay. So I, I do learn from them, but really what I'm doing is I'm not trying to do native food per se. Um, you know, I think native food or native cuisine should be done by native actually. Uh, but on my side, it's really just, you know, I I look at the terroir that we have right now, and I will say again, like it's 90% invasive and 10% native stuff, and I'm going like, well, this is the terroir that we have right now in California, mm-hmm. or it may, you know, or anywhere. This is a modern terroir, and how can we use it, you know, for culinary use, really? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'll say it right now. I'm not enamored with with traditional Native American cuisine. Um, now, there's some modern chefs who are doing brilliant things, like my friend Sean Sherman up in, in Minnesota. Absolutely. But um, but I look to them for techniques. Like, what do you do with buckeye? Or what do you do with acorns? Or what do you do with, you know, this or that or the other thing? Because they know way more than we do because they figured out how to make something basically good out of it. And then we take it from there. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. So, you know, on the flip side, you know, you talk about the the 10 percent. I work a lot with not only native plants, but occasionally I will work with plants that aren't super common. So uh, one example is there is a plant called Myrica hartwegii, which is uh, Sierra Nevada sweet bay. And it's it's not an endangered plant, but it's it's a plant of concern. And so there's it's of limited um, distribution. Right. So for me, I use it for bog myrtle and as a gruit herb for brewing beer. Okay. And the good thing about that particular use is you're using oh I don't know fifty leaves off of a off of a bush and that's it. So you can selectively prune any given bush tiny little bit. And you're good to go because, you know, you don't hurt the bush. You're not even you can't even notice that you were there. And the other thing I do is I'm not going to tell you where I find it. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, and it's um, it's one of those things where I on the one hand, I want to work with things like mariposa lily or camas bulbs or, you know, this this particular plant. On the on the other hand, I'm extremely cognizant of, uh, you know, what Paul Prudhomme did. Do you, do you remember Paul Prudhomme? No. He was a he was a Cajun chef in Louisiana, and he's the one who made blackened redfish popular. Okay. So if you've ever heard of blackened redfish, it's because of him. Okay. Well, what happened was he set off a gold rush, and so many redfish were caught that they had to shut down the fishery for several years. Oh wow! And it broke and it broke his heart. I don't want to be that guy. So it's it's super important for me to not only be responsible in my own work with just me. But to be kind of secretive in a way about, you know, no, I'm not going to tell you where that plant lives. And if you want to find out, that's up to you. But 
because I don't want to create that gold rush. Well, then, you know, this is where you start to go into the subject of wild, crafts, wild crafting versus foraging. And wild crafting, mm. you know, foraging, presently the definition of foraging has been pretty much to actually go into the wild and take plants. Um, and it's, you know, it has become a learn, not really in Southern California, to be honest, but in some part like, uh, I don't know about where you live, but New York and all that. Uh, a lot of chefs are actually forging right now from morels and ramps and all this stuff. Uh, and if not done properly, that could create a problem. But wild crafting is really more like a love of nature and you can forage, but in the same time you actually, you know, take care of nature and make sure it is extremely sustainable. My My philosophy is actually to, to plant more than what you will take type of thing. Exactly. So, I mean, I think we both, we were talking before we went on the air to, to about some of the things that we do. And, you know, I love to, there's a particular bulb, um, uh, it's called Blue Dicks. Right. Um, and what I decided to do is, I mean, they're extraordinarily common where I live. I mean, I've seen fields of, you know, 100,000 of them. So if I felt like digging, I could. But what I decided to do is because, you know, let's face it, when you dig a plant, you kill it. Right. I mean, I, it, it makes room for its neighbors to get bigger. And I still do dig wild onions up on the high Sierra, but not commercially. It's just for me. Right. And but with these these bulb flowers, I was looking around like, you know what? I could just plant these in my front yard. So I, lo and behold, you know, the, one of the things about these, especially these bulb vegetables, you know, to, to put them that way is they're also beautiful flowers. And guess who are the bulb kings of the planet? Your neighbors, the Dutch. Yes. <laughs> so I'm looking at Van Englen. Uh, Van Englen bulbs, you know, and I get their catalog every year. And if you look in their catalog, there are, you can buy cultivated camas. You can buy cultivated blue dicks. You can buy mariposa lily bulbs. You can buy all these bulbs. And so if I were to suggest to the people listening out there, if you're interested in eating these things, and especially camas is wonderful, buy the bulbs yeah. and, and, and cook with them and see if you like them a lot. And if you do, plan up your yard because it's going to look beautiful. And then you'll also know that you can then harvest those bulbs when those bulbs really ought to be harvested, which is in the fall. And, you know, and you and I both, if you're going to pick something with a flower on top of it, you know, you need the, you need that to identify it, so you don't pick, say, death canvas. Right. But that's not the right time to pick that bulb. So, that's what I do. I mean, that, and I plant my whole, my whole property is, is loaded with natives. And I was talking to you about the, the bushes like manzanita and the, right. and the lemonade bush that I have that I just planted, and the cactus too, and that sort of thing. So. Do you have that option? Do you have enough property, or how do you work it? Oh, actually, when I did all the research for my book, I have access to probably like 500 acres of land through France and stuff like that. So that's what I do too. I actually plant, uh, you know, I've planted white sage, black sage, uh, planted planted manzanita, and all this stuff too. So that's kind of my approach to it. And also, when I was working with chef, uh, something like blue dick, I would never give that to them. Right. That's exactly true. You know, there's certain things like um, like with me with mushrooms, there are three or four delicious Amanita mushrooms right. that for me and my friends only, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not ever going to sell that because I don't want, again, to create, oh, this mushroom's fantastic. Yeah. And they'll get somebody who is less conscientious to go out and maybe give them a bad mushroom. Yeah. And to be honest, like I've never been like into commercial foraging. The way I work with chef is. You know, I would basically be working part-time, and it was not just foraging, but it was also like creating vinegars and, you know, making some infusions, making drinks, non-alcoholic drinks, um, fermentation, and all kinds of different stuff. So foraging was actually just a part of it. So I never really sell the plant. It was just more, more working with them. Yeah, I mean, do you find, I find, you know, unless I'm in a morel burn, which is, you know, every couple of years I'll get on one where, you know, you can pick 30 or 40 pounds a day, when that's when you buy the permit to, to be a commercial picker. That's the only time I really enjoy picking commercially. Everything else just kind of kills the joy out of it. Yeah, but you know, here in Southern California, we don't even have plants that 
are so valuable that they could be sold commercially. Like we don't have morals, we don't have ramps. The only plant that I see are vested they are forage. They actually not forage for food. Is, is the white sage, uh, mm. and those are used by uh, people who make smudge and stuff like that. That's right. It's the hippie, the hippie smudge. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really the only thing. And and you know, actually, to be honest, in 16 years of hiking and foraging and spending time in nature, I've actually never seen anybody foraging. Interesting. You see people in, in Northern California, and the farther north you get, the more a bit of a big deal it is. And, and in fact, it's it's regulated in the Pacific Northwest because there's so much um, there's so much foraging activity that goes on. Interesting. Actually, the only time I saw, to correct myself, the only time I saw some people were um, a really old, a group of really old Armenian people, and they were collecting curly dock. Interesting. And they call it mountain sorrel. Oh, that's about right. And uh, they were using it because it's, I mean, for them, food and medicine is actually go together in their culture. So they collect it because it's good for the stomach, apparently. I bet it is. I mean, it's, you know, I make sorrel soup every spring and, and sorrel sauce for, you know, all the salmon and trout I catch. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So let's get, you know, I, I really want to talk more about preservation because this is something that both of us do and you're very, very good at. Um, did you grow up with, you know, oh, it's this time to pick all this, it's time to dry that, it's time to do whatever. And is this part of how you grew up or did you just pick it up later? Uh, no, we had to. So because we were living out of a garden and at the time when I was growing up in Belgium, the winter were quite brutal. So as anything related to food, you're basically collecting the harvest when it is ready, and then you have to find a way to preserve them. So my mom was doing uh, different type of canning, like water bath canning, high-pressure canning, and also pickling and stuff like that too. So I kind of grew up in a family where we, it was normal to preserve food. It's interesting. I, I didn't, oddly enough. I mean, I definitely grew up foraging, but it was of the moment stuff and mom didn't can or pickle anything and and I but other people in my neighborhood did so I, I picked it up kind of as an adult yeah a lot of people do actually because it's really a lost art to some degree so of all the things you do I mean if you if you look at the book yeah um, I mean fully half of it is is preservation because if you're a forager you know as you and I both know nature doesn't care about your schedule it's going to be when it's going to be exactly. if you miss it you miss it yeah is there something that you would hope that everybody who buys that book would do? Like, what are the, what are the things that you're just really hoping that people get into? Oh, that's an odd question. In terms of preservation? Or any, any of the, you know, there's got to be pieces to that book that you're like, oh, I really hope this catches on. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I think the creation of drinks is what I think people should be interested in. And I'm, when I say drink, I'm thinking about not just making, uh, it's actually a fermentation process, not just making beer, but also making sodas, for example, and cold infusion. And the main reason I would love for people to really explore that is, you know, a good example, you, you go to the store and you buy a bottle of soda right now. What do you see on the label? You basically have corn syrup. You basically have uh, some kind of unnatural or natural flavor, but it's really chemical. Uh, it's, it's pretty much like a big bunch of chemicals and, and sugar, really. And the beauty of wild sodas is, one, you can explore tons of flavor, but two, it's also a probiotic process using yeast. And three, you can also know the plant so well that you can actually make soda that will be actually healthy for you because they don't contain a lot of sugar and medicinal because of the plants that you use. So there is a whole subject that you can actually study right there. And I think that will be quite fascinating. It is. That, that did fascinate me a lot when I read that part because my version of the soda is I, I cheat. I, I make syrups. I make all kinds of syrups of, you know, whatever you can make a syrup out of. And then I'll pour, I don't know, maybe a, a shot glass worth or less into a pint glass and then cover it with seltzer water and call it a day. Right. That's my easy, cheap way to do it, <laughs> especially because those syrups never die. Uh, I just opened some um, uh, gooseberry syrup from 2013. Perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. Nice. 
Yeah, you can actually yeah. do that with jams too. If you want, you can take some jam and add some water and then some yeast and make a soda out of it. But I also like to do what's called cold infusion. And cold infusion, some plants uh, are actually better if you don't boil them. A good example would be mint. Mm. So if you take a mint and you boil it, it's not bad, but you cannot compare it to the flavor of fresh mint. So if you do... You know, I, I like to do cold infusion. It's basically just taking the plant and and cut them and put them in the cold water overnight in the fridge, and then drink it. It's called, I think, in Italian, it's called aqua fresca. You know, it's a mm-hmm. clean or fresh water. And you can do that with flowers. You can do that with roots. You can do that with all kind of different stuff. Uh, and, and sumac is especially famous for that. Uh, there you go. Because if you use sumac with hot water, you bring out all the bitter tannins and you ruin it. Right. So a good example is you can do a cold infusion with sumac. So the next day it tastes fantastic. And then you can go a little bit further and put a little bit of sugar and then yeast. And then suddenly you have a, you know, a soda made with a, you know, it's a cold fermentation. And it's super mm. easy to do. And you know, the amount of concoction that you can do is pretty much infinite. I have a, a manzanita sumac uh, hard cider in the works. I've uh, I made one version of it. I'm tinkering with it. And I think I'm actually going to jack it a little bit with prickly pear syrup to get, to boost the color. Nice. You know, so you have that, that vivid, you know, pink magenta thing going on. Uh-huh. It totally looks like a girly drink, but it tastes great. <laughs> I love prickly pear. Do they really taste like watermelon? Weirdly, or bubble gum. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the traditional one, the traditional alcohol that they do in, uh, if I recall, is in a uh, New Mexico is the, with the Saguaro cactus, and they make a, some kind of primitive beer by boiling the the inside. But on my side, I actually don't boil them. Um, I just take the the pulp and everything, and just add some yeast to it, and it makes an incredible fresh drink. Pul- the pulque, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the pulque. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, because they do that with um, with uh, all the different agaves too. Yeah, and interesting when you boil the 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 prickly pear, they are, you actually taste like corn. Really? Yeah. So the flavor profile completely changed. Huh? Who knew? Yeah, I didn't know either. I did experimented with it. I was like, wow, that tastes like corn. You walk me through. Let's say, what do you what are you doing next week in terms of, you know, here it is, here it is, the middle of June. What's your what's your rhythm? Of a, of a typical foraging week. Okay, so my, my approach right now is, yeah, I would tell you my approach, is actually, again, is based on plants. You know, it's basically, uh, I would take plants and experiment with them and see what preservation method will work better with that plant in terms of flavor profile. Good example would be the wild radish, which I'm, right now is prime time to collect. And fermentation is just fantastic with it. You can you know, ferment it, you know, like sauerkraut, and you can also uh, ferment it like, you know, make some type of kimchi. Uh, you can also pickle them in vinegar. So my approach, again, is kind of like, look, take a look at the plant and, see, and and really figure out which preservation technique works with it. Elderberry wine, right now, we have a lot of elderberries. So, you know, traditionally, elderberry wine is made, but you can also make some fantastic jam, and I also uh, like to dehydrate the berries to be used later in sauce and you know or drinks, stuff like that. Actually, you know, when I make wild beer, I like to sometimes put a little bit of elderberry, elder, dry elderberries in it for um, a little bit of sour and fruity flavor. God, I'm just, I'm just still getting over the elderberries. I mean, even you know, you, I think you might be the first people in the country to have ripe elderberries. Although people in Florida might might be earlier than you, but like ours are all green right now. And there's in most of the country, it's just flowers. Yeah. No, the flowers for us were like two months ago. I know. And you have those, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, I believe Southern California is the only place in the world with those white elderberries. I think they have some in Australia. And I was talking to a fellow forager um, last week. Um, and we we kind of wondering where they came from. Maybe they came from Australia, but we don't think so. I mean, they classify of Mexican elder, and some of our Mexican elder actually have either blackberries or whiteberries. And I would say where I live, 50% of the elder trees have whiteberries, and 50% will have blackberries. And you talk, you're talking literally thousands of trees. It's huh. everywhere. 
ours are only dark, 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 dark blue. So, but you probably don't have the the Mexican elder. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we do. Really? Okay. Yeah, we have two different kinds. We've got the um, we've got the regular black el- or you know blue elder, and then we've got um, we've got a kind of an alpine elder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I can pick elder flowers all the way to October. Right. You know, in October they're at you know eight thousand feet, but <laughs> but that's the cool thing about being in California. We can chase we can chase the seasons. I mean, I can go back in time, depending on how high up I go. I mean, I I was just in I got I was in a blizzard last Sunday. Oh my god! Yeah, we were up in Alpine County working with uh, with pine stuff, and and I'm doing that pine nut syrup thing, but it takes you know weeks and weeks and weeks because the 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 pine cones themselves are not quite as uh, moist yeah. as i would like yeah. so it's like a slow motion a slow motion melt of the sugar like every day oh by the way it gasses off like crazy yes uh, it's <laughs> loaded with wild yeast it is completely yeah. loaded i uh I, I put some in a vacuum sealed bag just to see if it would work faster and by the next day the vacuum bag was like practically blowing up so i had to pierce it a little bit yeah it's probably like the the best way to get together wild yeast is probably using uh, unripe pine cones interesting I didn't know that. I'll have, to, I'll have to give it a go. But you know, I didn't know that either. It's basically just for experimentation. And what I did when I did the research on pinecone is I did some research on on traditional French uh, cuisine. And somehow I found this link and information about people making pinecone syrups in the Alps. And it was for medicinal and also culinary use. And I found it fascinating. I took a look at the process. I was like, wow. And my friend's Gloria has an incredible property, which is loaded with pinion pine. So I tried with pinion pine cones, unripe pinion pine cones, and my God, it's just so delicious. Oh, I love that smell. Yeah. That smells amazing. But I'm still learning. You know, I've I've had them in the sun for like eight weeks, and I'm about to put it in bowl right now because, frankly, the flavor was actually better after four weeks. So, you know, it's like really uh, learning and, you know, you learn as you go along, really. Oh, yeah. So tell me about some uh, particularly horrific failures, because we've all had them. Oh, I've done a lot of bad stuff, mostly in the beginning. Uh, oh, I remember my first beers were terrible, because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying with trying things. I've done fermentation where the stuff was rotting, because I forgot that you have to put everything under the brine. I've had bottles exploding in my face, you know, making Oh, so, that's not so good. Does. Well, not exploding, but... The gusher. The gusher, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's all part of experimenting. You do a lot of mistakes in the you know, early days. I did tons of mistakes, and as you go along, you start learning the thing that works, and at the same time, you start learning about flavor combinations. Uh, you know, a good example is when I, I do my cooking with forest floor. You know, when I cook meat and, and I basically pick up ingredients in the forest, you, you know, you're talking about leaves, barks, and sticks, and all kinds of different stuff, and aromatic plants. And I remember the first one, uh, the first ones I did were terrible. Uh, the the meat or the fruits that were cooking in it were terribly bitter. Um, but I could see the potential in it, and it probably took me like three or four years to actually start figuring out like really nice blend, and at this point I can do it in my sleep. And I actually was in Vermont uh, two weeks ago. I was teaching there for like a whole week. And oh, that's I, cool. And uh, it's called Sterling College, fantastic place where they, they teach traditional agriculture and stuff like that and permaculture. And I went into their own forest and actually, uh, you know, just from sheer experience, managed to make an incredible blend for cooking. You know, it took me no time because I've done it so long. I'm used to flavor profile and smell and even in a complete different environment. Yeah, that's my favorite. Whenever um, whenever I travel for, you know, book tours and whatever, there's always going to be some reporter who's like, all right, I'm going to stump the forager guy. So they'll take me to like an empty lot or whatever, with not really knowing that an empty lot usually has loaded with wild foods. Yeah. So I my favorite was I was in Atlanta and... The guy's like, all right, California boy, find me something to eat. And there was like 19 different edible things in this one uh, vacant lot. So it's like, that was, that's, you know, yeah. I say that just because it's, A, it was hilarious to watch the guy's face. But B, you know, once you know 
And that's the thing that, that once you do this long enough, you don't have to know the species. You just because, but you're going to know the family and the and the, right. the general idea of what that plant is. Right. And and to be honest, you know, uh, in the beginning when I was learning wild food, I, I thought that after a couple of years, I thought I well, I, I was like hot shit and I knew a lot of stuff. But the more I do this, uh, the more it's very humbling. You realize you don't know shit. Meaning, but that there's so much to learn. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing. It's all part of discovering and researching. You know, it's it's very humbling in the same way. You know, so there's always something new. There's always something new. And I mean, I do. I remember the first day I show up in Vermont. I I look at the window and I'm like, oh my god, I am in trouble. And after spending two days, you know, over there, and also spending time with a with a botanist. I was able to put a whole curriculum for the students for like five days, and at the end of the five days, we had the most incredible wild food dinner. Very cool. You know, so it it, it goes fast at one point because you already have a good background to build upon. One of my favorite things that I'm playing with right now is seaweeds. See, I cannot do that because, and this is something that's actually interesting as a, you know, when you do wild crafting, you actually learn about so much about the environment and I could not touch anything close to Los Angeles in the water. Oh, good point. Yeah. You'd have to go to the central coast. If I do, I make my own salt from dehydrated seawater, I go further than St. Louis Obispo just to get my seawater. Or you could just go fishing and go, and once you're way offshore... You can just dip a, dip a bucket in the, in the ocean that way. Yes and no, actually. If you, are, if you really take a look at bacteria and stuff like that, in Los Angeles, it goes pretty far. And hmm. you also have all the runoff from all the agriculture that happens. Oh, I'm talking like salmon fishing where you're like five or six, ten miles offshore. Yeah, probably that would be better. <laughs> but, I mean, on my side, I would not touch anything that's close to the water or in the water in in Los Angeles area. Well, it's similar. I mean, I... I gather seaweed uh, in Sonoma and Mendocino, right. but Lord knows I'm not going to gather seaweed in Bodega Bay. Exactly. But I think this is so good, too, because you know, as a wild crafter, you actually, and as people learn wild food, they also become aware of pollution and all this stuff. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, I mean, this is, it bears repeating, you and I both know this, but, you know, don't forage right on the side of a busy road. Yep. You know, it's either been sprayed or heavy metals from the car exhaust. Exactly. You know, and even the, you know, the interesting part when I when I go hiking or foraging, one of the big things I like to do is also removing all the trash because it's unbelievable what people do, you know. Yeah, I, I usually keep a ba- um, uh, garbage bag in my backpack. Yeah, exactly. So what are you working on this summer? What's uh, Do you have any big projects in the world? This summer, I'm really, really studying uh, wild brewing, uh, collecting bacteria, lacto-fermentation, and fermentation. So that's my next big project. I'm actually going further than the plant. I'm going to the microbes now. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm fascinating, fascinated with making wild brews and sodas and, and really looking at all the different techniques that you can use because it's not just one technique. You know, you can boil things to extract flavor. There is also, um, you can also uh, do cold infusion. So there's, you can also mix the two. Like, for example, when I went to my friend's property, Gloria, we, d- we did a, a, a beer based on our property. So it's basically a beer made with manzanita berries uh, mugwort, uh, um, pinion, pinion branches, and white fur. Mm. Interesting. And if you actually, I don't know if you try using pine and boil it. For me, if I boil pine or white fur, is absolutely or, fur, or yeah, pine or white fur is absolutely disgusting. It is like resin. Yeah, it's turpentine. Yeah, but if you actually cut the needle and do a cold fermentation, then you get all the beautiful, nice quality. For example, white, white fur uh, will taste like tangerine. I'd say pinion pine is just incredible flavor. It's a mix of pine, but perfume in it. Also a little bit of orangey. It is really just, it might be my favorite aroma ever, is, is pinion pine. Yeah. And we don't, have, we don't have edulis. You have pinus edulis down there. Yeah. We have pinus monophylla, okay. which is you know, also a pinion, but it's the single leaf pinion. And, and it's, they smell pretty much the same, and it's just... It's, it, I just want to sit there and smell it. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, if you do a beer, for example, you can do like a regular mugwort beer, 
which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, you boil everything. And when you cool it down and add the yeast, you can actually add, you know, a little bit of the branch from white fur and you cut the needle to extract the flavor and also from uh, from pinion pine. And my God, it's going to be so good. Yeah. You're essentially dry hopping. Yeah. With the, with the well, what, but you know, it's interesting. I've never learned traditional brewing, so I don't even know it's called dry hopping. It's completely on my side, being experimental from scratch. What kind of Belgian, Belgian are you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but even when I grew up, I mean, a lot of the beer were actually, uh, I mean, we, we, I did some seasoned beer. But at this point in Belgium, everything was still hops and grain to a large degree. You definitely need to get a. Um, there's a book called Wild Beer or Wild Brewing. I have that, yeah. And uh, and of course there's there's a uh, Stephen J. Buner or Stephen Buner's book, the Sacred Sacred Herbal Healing Herbs. Yeah. Which I uh, know you have that one. Yes, it was. It was actually the original inspiration. I read that book in uh, 2008 when it came came up, and that's what got me started with it. And then I started experimenting with my own local plant. American Sour Beers is another one that you're going to want to get. Okay. Because that one is, um, it's it's a little bit more down to earth and it's a little bit more technical, but it will give you a really good uh, footing uh, to make, not only, you know, basically working with the microbes and the lactobacillus and pediococcus right. and pretenomyces and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you, and you know, I mean, I know you want to do everything 5,000 years ago, but you know you can get... Um, cultures of Britannomyces. And one of the things that I'm excited to do when the weather cools, because this is the thing you learn when you read about making spontaneous ferments, don't do it in hot weather. If you do it in hot weather, um, it favors microbes that that basically turn everything to vinegar. And the Belgians do all of their spontaneous ferments for lambics and such. Uh, in October, November. Yep. So when their their temperatures are in the 60s, and so when your temperatures are there, that's when you want to lay everything out and see what the microbes are. And and I've been brewing and making salami and doing all kinds of fermentating things in this one spot of my house for 15 years. I have no idea what is living there, and I would love to find <laughs> out. No, it's interesting because I really they never go deep, deep that deep because for me it's more like using what I have, you know, without, you know, I'm not, I'm not even, to, to, to be honest, even remotely interested to know what what the bacteria are, what the type of yeast is, I basically just use it, and, and it just plain works for me, but I'm, I've been brewing by 100 degrees, and I've never had those brews turning into vinegar. Well, I mean, how open is it? Well, I mean, it's I, it's not really, well. Again, you have two different types of beer. So you have the really primitive beer, which is open fermentation, and those one you're probably gonna have to drink within five to seven days because those See, those will turn into vinegar. Exactly. And then you have the uh, what I would call like the more modern approach to fermentation, where you actually bottle it and then use a device called airlock on top. So it's two different types. You know, but the more primitive one is, defi- is definitely like uh, five or seven, seven days of fermentation, which, by the way, there is so much to discover from a culinary perspective. When I was in Vermont, we actually did a primitive brew based on their forest, and we cooked rabbit in it, and it was absolutely to die for. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes the most. Inc- you can make the most incredible sauce and the most incredible liquid to cook with, you know, it's basically, it's very Belgian of me, it's like beer cooking, you know. I know. Uh, but you, it's fascinating, you, you can make something super delicious in like six or seven days through primitive ferment brewing. Not only that, but you can also use beer to uh, to make interesting products like beer jam. You can also make, uh, uh, using very primitive beer, you, you can make popsicle, you can make, you know, ice cream. <laughs> A beersicle? Yeah, a beersicle. <laughs> a primitive beersicle. That's classic. Do you have a recipe for the for uh, beersicle in your book? Uh, it's gonna be in the no. It's gonna be in the in the book I'm working on right. In the next yeah. book. Cool. That's. But I mean, you know, even for pickling, you can actually use that for pickling because the pH is really low, so you can add vinegar, and then soon you can make pickling that have incredible flavor based on the terroir. Some of the things that we are fermenting and and, and preserving literally last for years and years and years. Yes. I I can I have this one corner of my refrigerator where I have, you know, 
three-year-old kimchi and and i just served some uh pickled mustard greens from 2013 in for dinner last night and you wouldn't think that these things would hold up that long but not only do they but they change over time just like wine does that is correct so it, it can be sometimes a good thing sometimes a bad thing is something that comes through experience you know when when i was studying like uh, modern food preservation technique they always tell you pretty much that one year is kind of like, you know, after that the flavor will deteriorate. But sometimes I think that the flavor don't deteriorate; it just change, and it can be in a good way. Exactly. I mean, I mean and sometimes it's <laughs> you know you open the jar and you're like, oh my god. Yes. Yes, I know. But I mean, <laughs> what the hell was that? <laughs> I mean, you take a look at uh, was it the restaurant Fabican where they basically just ferment the meat really uh, oh, yeah. for, for like eighteen months. That's like a cow. I'd like to trace. I'd like to taste that. I was reading the book uh, last year, and apparently it, it started to taste a bit like cheese to some degree. I'm going like, okay, cow cheese. Well, you'll start to get a cheesy flavor um, in the fourth week if you're dry aging. Okay. Well, that's what pretty much uh, you know. I think the guy is doing. But I'm take a look at the photo, and it, that would be fascinating for me to study too, because I don't do a lot of meat preservation, but. I think he actually preserved the, the meat in, in honey and fat based on the photo I was looking at. So it, it, this is like Viking technology. Very much so. Yeah. Very much. I do a lot of meat preservation, and and we need to get you. Uh, we need to get you either hunting or doing more fishing stuff because <laughs> that's that's the one piece. Like every time I look at your stuff, I'm like, ah, oh, there needs to be some you know piece of meat on it. I need more time. I I, I need more time. I don't know to find enough time to do all the things I'm doing. You're, it's full time. You got no excuse. I mean, if you take a look at my place, and we just moved, so it's a small place now, but it's, it's like a food lab. I have things bubbling everywhere, I have preserves everywhere, and I'm like so busy, you know, doing research, really. Well, one thing that I've been doing that you, that you might be able to do pretty easily is uh, salting down various species of fish. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, like codfish. Yeah. But... I find that rockfish and lingcod and striped bass, they will they will salt down every bit as good as a codfish. Yep. That I believe you have actually done it even with trout and sardine too. You know, the, the, the fun one, and I actually did it. I haven't written about it because I've only done it once and I need to do it more times so I don't kill someone, uh, is Norwegian rockfisk, <laughs> which is that fermented trout that they do. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I like it after three or four months where it's a little tangy. They they would never eat it that young. Yeah. They want it like a year oh, old. Oh, I believe you. I've, I've had someone that was in Denmark. I was like, oh, my God. Like, oh, you sure you can eat that? And I don't even think they're sure. I think it's just a, a, ma- a macho thing. Yeah, but you know, what was fascinating, too, for me was when I did um, uh, my own fish sauce, the garum. Oh, yeah, I've done that. And uh, what was interesting, too, is I actually did a, t- a second version, which is not in the book, and I actually did put, like, a local uh, aromatic where it was fermenting. So you can really change the uh, the flavor profile of the sauce by actually putting local aromatic into it. Like, the hardest thing I have when I'm making my own fish sauce is clearing it. Like, it, it's, it'll eventually settle out, look beautiful in the whatever you're in the jar that you're fermenting it in, mm-hmm. but... but the actual clearing of it to get it the final product into a bottle is just it's been it's been tough for me. Coffee filter. Ah. Coffee filter. It's going to take the whole day to filter. Uh, okay. But it's, okay. it's super clear, and then you can and then you have the the paste that is also I actually like the paste better than uh, than the um, liquid to be honest. It's some gnarly taste, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe I maybe I grew up and I'm used to it because it's it pretty much the one I made pretty much tasted like anchovy paste. Oh, mine was a little funky. Really? But I I think the key for what you just said is that it's just to leave it all day. I was I, I got impatient. I think. Yeah, I, so I basically from, I think I fermented mine for like eight or nine months, and then first I filter it using a crude strainer to remove what was left, like the bones and stuff. Right. Uh, and then it was already pretty smooth as a paste. And then I basically used the coffee filter, which then created a very beautiful uh, liquid, and, and the paste was just fantastic. 
Hmm. All right. Well, I'll give it a go because we use um, anchovies for live bait when we go fishing in the San Francisco Bay. Yeah. So I can often come home with, you know, three pounds of anchovies if I feel like it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, on my side, uh, the, I did it with sardines. Okay. Yeah. Same basic thing. They're just bigger. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, So yeah. last topic before I let you go. Yes. Resin and rosin. Yes. Wasn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, you're. I mean, so you see, you know, what we're talking about is our pine resin, which is the hard, you know, almost you know, bugs trapped in amber right. sap from a, from a pine, and then rosin, which is the stuff that's still sort of like uh, like chew, already chewed bubble gum. Right. And your book has some bits about it. Yeah. Uh, and I'd I'd love to talk about <laughs> what the hell can you do with this stuff. Because it smells so amazing. Well, it's, it's uh, still, you know, to be honest, it's still experimental. I actually did it, but I pretty much left it open in the book. You know, it's what happened is when I did, you know, when I have an ingredient, uh, sometimes I get completely obsessed about it. And one of the things I got obsessed with it was actually resin because I'm going like it smells so good. You have all kinds of different flavor. It's readily available. Uh, because a lot of pine have just these bits of resin sticking out. Um, and I was going like, what can we do with resin? So I started studying it. And then at one point I came across something on the on the internet that says pine rose, cooking with pine rosin. And I was going like, oh, that's a typo. But no, it's not a typo. So what happened is I forgot where it was exactly in the United States, but where they were cutting a lot of trees, uh, they would actually collect the, the resin to make turpentines. And part of the turpentine process, once the, all the turpane and everything was taken off, you will end up with a clarified resin that's pretty much called rosin. And rosin is actually very hard, you know, uh, because it's been boiled. It's basically kind of like pretty much like a crack, a stone, really, like amber. It looks very much like amber. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were cooking in it. And I was like, oh my God, that's fascinating. So I went to my friend's property and picked up like some bunch, you know, of uh, pinion pine uh, resin, which is the most soft, uh, you know, part. And I took it home and I started boiling it. Uh, and it was terrible. I mean, the smell was overwhelming. By the way, don't do that at home. Mia got, Mia got so mad. Good to know. So I, I did that outside <laughs> after that. And I basically just, you know, by boiling it, you actually remove all the terpene, and I, I did that like several times uh, until I got a, a liquid that, you know, and you also have to remove like the pine needle and all that with the strainer. And at the end, you end up with a very clear, dark liquid, which when you cook, cook it, it actually becomes kind of like oil, pretty much. Uh, and you put your potatoes inside, and you can totally cook them that way. And apparently you make the best potato in the whole world because it's actually seal all the flavor inside the potato. And if you do research now, because now you have the word rosin, and if you go on the internet and go like, you know, cooking with pine rosin, you realize it was actually trendy in the 20s and 30s. And you could actually go to the store and buy pine rosin and even a rosin cooker for it. Huh. So it's completely like a lost thing, actually. I was amazed to came up, uh, upon it. It was like, whoa, that's a new one. Pine, pine rosin. Cooking with pine rosin. And I, I, it was very delicious. Well, sounds like a, sounds like back to the kitchen to try and figure out what to do with this stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it was just nearly, it was a, I think it took me like two or three weeks to forage enough pine rosin, uh, resin to start with. You can actually buy it online. And I think I put the link in my book at the end. You can actually go online and buy, buy pine rosin. And I bet you there is, you know, it's because I don't have some right now, but if I had like a bunch, I probably would start experimenting with even cooking, for example, whole onions and see what happens with it. You cannot eat the outside, you know, you basically have to cut them and spoon the inside off for potato, but I'd be amazed what other ingredients you can use with it, you know, onions and who knows what kind of other wild food, even carrots. I wonder what the flavor will be. Yeah. Or you know, like a wild carrot, which is kind of boring and parsnip-like, but then you you coat it in the uh, in the rosin. Yeah, maybe it's different. So you know, this is it was like two page I think in my book, and I basically left it open. It's like it's really experimental at this point. Challenge accepted. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that would be fantastic. I mean, it's, you know, my, my friend Gloria has like 180 acres of pinyon pine, and there was a forest fire probably like six or seven years ago, so some of them actually dead and full of resin, rosin on it, because it's actually already cooked pretty much. Mm. So it's a very neat way to actually collect it. Well, all right, Pascal, we've been on the line for over an hour. Oh, my God, I could, so fast. We, we could we could definitely talk, and I'll have you back on the show, and we'll talk about something more specific, but I definitely wanted to introduce listeners to you because uh, you're just, you know, I just love talking with you. Thank you. If you are interested out there, uh, Pascal's new book is The New Wildcrafted Cuisine. It is available on Amazon and probably wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Thanks a lot for being on the show, Pascal. Thank you so much. Take it easy. You too. Well, that is the Hunt Gather Talk podcast for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw. And as always, if you are looking for any kinds of links or more information about the things that we discussed in this episode of the podcast, go to Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That's honest-food.net. And I will have a full list of show notes for this episode with links to books and other articles and lots of information about all of the things that we talked today. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. As always, if you subscribe to the podcast via Stitcher or iTunes or whatever service that you use, it helps me out a lot. And I always love to see comments in those formats as well as emails from you that have ideas for future podcasts. I really appreciate it. Once again, I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and I will talk to you soon.